Well, good morning, church. Let's stand together. Happy Sunday. It's so good to see you all. Welcome to you joining us here, joining us online. Let's worship the Lord this morning. He is worthy of our praise. This is our testimony. We sing this out. Come on. Saw darkness run for cover, but the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in heaven. Come on, that's amazing. And I believe in signs and wonders, yeah. I have resurrection power.
these words from Psalm 117. It says, praise the Lord, all you nations, extol him, all you peoples, for great is his love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Gives us a reason to sing today. So let's continue to lift our voices to a God who is worthy, who is with us today. This melody, this song, come on, sing it out. I'll raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I'll raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. Oh, come on, church. I'll raise a
Isn't it amazing what singing hallelujah can do? Do you want freedom? Sing hallelujah. Do you want to see healing? Sing hallelujah. Do you want to see victory? Sing hallelujah. Louder and louder we sing hallelujah because death is defeated. That's why we're here. That's what brings us together. Death is defeated. The king is alive. And because of that church, we will see victory. As we raise our voices, as we praise our God together, we will see victory. Hear these words from Psalm 54. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all of my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. The weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph. Oh, my God will never fail. Oh, my God will never fail. Sing this out. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory for the
we rest in that promise, the promise of your presence. In the darkest night, you are with us. Thank you, Lord. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen, church. You may be seated. thousand dollars to help ministry partners through your generosity we have raised almost hundred and fifty thousand dollars in a week um, what we've designated for um, efforts in Bolivia that you guys will channel is we have eight thousand dollars eight thousand dollars for you guys to uh, see oh, wow. how it could be used best to free up resources that you guys might have for other things, but so we could specifically help. I just keep thinking of, you know, uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much Amen. for allowing us to be the conduit of God's provision to mm -hmm. places of, of need and um, uh, in our part of the, the world in Bolivia. So we really, really, Mm. Appreciate our, our Wheaton Bible Church family. Buenas, buenos días, hermanos. Uh, aunque no nos conocemos, uh, pero estos tanques de oxígeno nos están sirviendo mucho. La verdad, yo he visto en la iglesia algunos tanques, pero mientras no necesitábamos, no, no pensaba de dónde han aparecido esos tanques ahí en la iglesia, pero. Uh, ahora que mi tía está mal, uh, en realidad nos ha dado COVID a toda la familia. La que está filmando es mi esposa. Y bueno, me he puesto a pensar y quién ha traído estos tanques, de dónde han aparecido. Y me puse a orar y agradecerle a Dios que, que haya habido hermanos de, de los Estados Unidos que hayan donado, han sacado parte de su plata, de de lo que es de, de cada uno para ayudarnos. Y en este caso, anoche fui yo a la iglesia a, a traer otro tanque porque mi tía ya no puede estar sin oxígeno. Le quitamos el oxígeno y, y rápido baja su saturación. Entonces, bueno, una vez más les agradezco a todos, les agradezco por su cariño. Tal vez no, no nos conocemos, ustedes no nos conocen pero sabemos que un día vamos a estar con el Señor y ya podré darles un abrazo. Gracias, hermanos. Gracias por su cariño. Por... Que Dios los bendiga mucho. Que Dios les, les bendiga un... hasta ciento por uno. Yo les ruego. Anoche me puse a orar por, por todos los hermanos que, que donaron estos tanques. Gracias, hermanos. Gracias, Greg. Gracias a la iglesia de la IBM y también a los pastores, los líderes. Muchas gracias. Dios los bendiga. How cool is that? So, Greg and Faith Hurst are from Wheaton Bible Church, or Wheaton College graduates. They minister in the country of Bolivia. This family is a part of that church, and they have been the beneficiaries of 
this $150,000 we raised last fall that they, my and part of it went obviously to oxygen tanks. I just talked to a woman after the last service who's from Bolivia. She said, you have no idea what's going on down there and how critical oxygen tanks are for people uh, who've had COVID, who've had other respiratory issues. And I want you to know the 150,000 we raised and raised in just a week is over and above the $2 million that we invest every single year as a church in the global and the local cause of Christ. Can we praise God for that? And it's the Holy Spirit that uses your prayers and your generosity to make this possible. Uh, when we give, we are investing in the kingdom of God. Uh, giving is one of the ways we lay up treasures in heaven. And I want to say thank you, church. Thank you for your generosity and encourage you to continue to invest through the local church in the global and local cause of Christ. Among other ways, we give other ways we serve. God is bearing fruit here in the communities around us through our ministries and overseas in the almost 90 different missionary units that we support in most of the continents of the world. Thank you, thank you. Now let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for these uh, stories, for the way you have led Greg and Faith Hurst. I, I will never forget going with them on their very first trip to Bolivia when they were looking for your will, and here they are, having served so many decades and planted churches and seen you by your spirit bring all sorts of Bolivians to Christ. We honor you and worship you for what you have done in Greg and Faith and for how you have used these oxygen tanks among all sorts of other things to minister to people in time of crisis whether it's blood drives we've had here at the church, or, um, uh, uh, food drives, on and on. We praise you, God, for your mercy. We praise you for being able to participate in tangible ways in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to say, I love you like this. And we know uh, that this is not something we have done. This is something you are doing. And we ask that you would be honored and glorified that more and more people would come to see the beauty, the majesty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and you would bring healing and you would bring hope. So, Father, bless us as we continue to serve you that we might sacrifice for you as you have done so for us in your Son. And we pray in the great name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Now, before we jump into this wonderful, fascinating series in the book of Jonah, I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about my final Sundays here at Wheaton Bible Church. It's sort of incomprehensible for me to be saying that. But I want you to know my last Sunday will be uh, September 19th. It will be a celebration. Yay, he's leaving. The old guy's leaving. Now, why do you think that's funny? 
And then, but, and the reason I'm mentioning this is prior to that, I'm going to take four weeks and talk to you, the great people of Wheaton Bible Church, about what I wish for you going forward. I'm not talking strategies, I'm talking about you personally and your hearts. Uh, these are four of my deepest aspirations for you. And here they are. I, I will kick this off on August 8th, um, and I'm going to break it out this way. I wish for you confidence in the character of God. Three weeks later, joy in the glory of God. Labor Day weekend, love for the word of God. And then I want to conclude with clarity about the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So what I wish for you, and, and hear me this, in this is confidence and joy, uh, passion, and that you might be clear about the wonder of God's grace in your life, like I'm going to uh, talk about today. So I want to invite you, and this is part of uh, why I mentioned this, to join me in praying that this will be a special time for our church. That God the Holy Spirit will do wonderful things as we celebrate um, the end of my ministry and the beginning of Hannibal's uh, ministry as a senior pastor here. Hannibal's installation will be the week after my celebration Sunday on September 26. And because of this, because of Hannibal's installation, because of this series, we are going to combine during this period of time our contemporary and our traditional services. So let's ask God to do uh, wonderful things. Now, I want to jump into the book of Jonah and Jonah chapter 2. If the book of Jonah is anything, it's a story of grace. All of Jonah's problems were because of his failure to understand God's grace. In chapter 2, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of the power of God's transforming grace in the Bible. It's right here in chapter 2, the chapter we're going to look at today. You see, grace is Christianity's greatest gift to the world. A world characterized by ungrace, strife, and disharmony. And when we come to our chapter, chapter 2, Jonah is praying. This uh, chapter 2 is a prayer. Uh, Jonah is repenting. Jonah is being transformed from the inside out by God and his delivering grace, his rescuing grace. And by the way, we know this story is true because Jesus refers to it as true. I'll come back to that a little later. So when we come to chapter 2, chapter 2 has two parts. Jonah's problem, God's solution. Jonah's failure. God's forgiveness, Jonah's sin, God's salvation. Hannibal pressed into the first part of chapter 2 last week. So this morning, I want to pick up the second part and want you to stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read beginning in verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. 
The earth beneath barred me in forever. Jonah's describing his experience inside the belly of the fish in, in the depths of the Mediterranean Sea. And then we have this transition. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. And what I have vowed, I will make good. Now the next line, some commentators argue, is the most central verse in the Bible because it expresses the central theme of the Bible. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. You may be seated. Now here, Jonah gets God's grace. Here in chapter 2, he's released, not just from the depths of the ocean, but from the depths of his rebellion. Everything that God has been doing in Jonah's life, everything that has happened in Jonah's life has brought him to this point. That he might move into and step into God's most difficult assignment in his life as a prophet. And that is to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh, this evil, wicked, brutal city, this brutal empire, and call this huge city in the ancient Near East to repentance. What an assignment. And all that has happened has been happening because of God's grace to get him ready, to bring him to this point. And Jonah is now ready to go. But I want to issue a warning here. I want to warn you about something. If Jonah, a prophet, a man who spoke directly with God, can be so blind to God's grace as we see in chapter 1, isn't it likely that in varying degrees, all of us as followers of Christ have different areas in our life where we can also be blind to God's grace. Years ago, some years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And he tells a tragic story. It's the story of the author Ernest Hemingway's mother. She was a devout follower of Christ, a believer in Christ. Yancey tells us that Ernest Hemingway's grandparents attended Wheaton College. And yet she absolutely detested Ernest Hemingway's life, his lifestyle, his secularism, the fact that he completely and totally denounced Jesus Christ. And as a result, his mother completely cut him off. Would have nothing to do with him. And it was worse. One year she sent him 
a birthday cake with a gun. The very gun his father had used to kill himself. Later, uh, she would send him lists, I mean lists, of things he needed to do in order for her to allow him to see her. Crazy things like, you got to pay all my bills. And Yancey concludes after he tells this story, saying, is it any wonder that Ernest Hemingway hated his mother and her Savior? She, wa- she had received grace, but she was blind to grace. And I want to say to you in love this morning, your biggest problems in life are not, are not your presenting problems, but your inability to see God's grace and to extend God's grace in the midst of those problems. So in chapter 1, God comes to the prophet Jonah and says, go. And the prophet in rebellion says, no. And now as we're here in chapter 2, Jonah the prophet is sinking under the weight of his blindness to God's grace. And so I wonder this morning, do you, I mean, do you really understand God's grace? Are there areas in your life where, like Jonah, you're running? Areas in your life where you don't want it, you don't appreciate it, you don't see it. Um, Areas where you're blind. And so this morning, I want to help you. I want to help you live the greatest possible life, the most the fullest possible life in in light of God's grace. So I want to help you and I want to talk about three things. What is the grace of God? Second, how do we receive this grace as believers in Christ? How do we continue to receive it, to to refresh it, if you will? And, And third, how do we know when the grace of God is real in our life? So let's start with what is God's grace? I'm going to say two things. And first, here's the first, grace is a person. Grace, if we're going to understand grace, we have to understand grace is not an it, it is not a thing. You will be miles down the discipleship road if you understand grace is not an impersonal stockpile of gold bricks in heaven that angels dole out when you pray. Now, uh, grace isn't an abstraction. Grace isn't an, uh, a concept. Grace is a person, Jesus Christ. And what that means is when you pray, you're not praying for a concept. God, would you give me grace? Uh, when you pray for a difficult child like Ernest Hemingway, or a difficult situation in work, a difficult situation in, in your marriage, a, a difficult situation uh, relative to a loved one's health, finances, on, on and on. When you pray, you're not praying for an abstraction. Oh, please. You're praying 
for the intervention of Jesus' mercy and compassion. You're praying for Jesus himself and his tender kindness towards you. Let me show you this. This is the first half of verse 6. Jonah uses these terms, um, sank or sinking and um, being barred in as he's in the belly of this fish. And uh, these terms, these verbs are metaphors for how close to death Jonah was. for how near death he was. Because of his blindness to grace. And then there's a pivot in the very next line in verse 6. But you, Jonah doesn't say, but it. But you, Lord my God, brought me up from the pit. Jonah knows it's God's merciful, uh, generous, forgiving rescue and and deliverance. Hear me, it isn't luck, it isn't coincidence. As a matter of fact, if you believe in sovereign grace, there is no such thing as luck. Right? It's all grace. It's all God's sovereignty. Uh, So Jonah isn't... uh, Uh, saying, oh man, thank you for the luck, thank you for the coincidence. Uh, Jonah says, but you, do you say that? God, you've delivered me in this situation, but it was you. Do you take the time to stop and to think and to catch your breath? Grace isn't an it, it isn't a thing. It's Jesus Christ. Grace is to God what your heartbeat is to you. And yet, somewhere along the way, we've tended to separate grace and we've reduced it to this this thing. And I want to plead with you not to do that. So, let me go on to the second aspect of grace, uh, a second answer to this question, uh, what is grace? I'm, and here I'm taking it a step further. I'm actually getting more specific because what we discover here is grace is God's undeserved favor. Just two words, it's God's undeserved favor. Now we see this throughout these verses, verses six through nine I'm talking about, but I want you to see it in verse eight, at the end of verse eight. Uh, Jonah expresses a marvelous statement here. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love. And here it is, God's love. The Hebrew word behind our English word love is the great Hebrew word hesed or chesed. It's sometimes translated uh, steadfast love, loyal love. It's translated grace. It's um, translated faithfulness. And it means mercy. It means kindness. The word is used to describe God's covenant relationship with Israel. His loyalty to Israel. His forgiveness of Israel. His commitment to Israel from the time of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, onward. And that despite 
Israel's repeated idolatry, Israel's repeated rejection, Israel's repeated sin, just like we see here when you put Jonah 1 and Jonah 2 together. Now, let's say you're a boss. You have employees, and you pay them. So let me ask a question. Is that grace? No. It's not undeserved favor. They deserve to be paid. They've earned it. So let me take it a step further. Let's say you've been in an adult community or a a large group Bible study or a small group Bible study, and you've had a, a, a wonderful teacher for a number of years, and she's moving away and you decide to get her a a, a gift, and and you should, hint. Okay, some of you are awake, forget I said that. Do not tell the elders, okay? So you decide to get her a gift. Now, is that gift grace? Well, yes and no. It's a favor to be sure, but it's not undeserved. So illustration number three, you have a neighbor who's a nightmare. Now raise your hand, no, never mind. (laughs) He plays his music too loud, he's rude, he won't listen to you, he's totally uncooperative, and he gets sick. And you begin to run errands for him. And as a matter of fact, you start to take care of him. Is that grace? Yes, it's undeserved favor. And I say all that because that's exactly what Jonah is experiencing here in chapter 2. And what Jonah is experiencing here in chapter 2 is a picture of the grace and the forgiveness each and every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ have received because of the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus. So Jonah's deliverance points to your deliverance. And and you read this and you say, man, God has done the same thing in my life. Only it wasn't a fish, it was my sin. So another way to think of God's grace is God taking the initiative towards you. Or better, God always taking the initiative toward you. In spite of you. You know, not surprisingly, because I would argue grace, God's love is a central theme of the Bible. Jesus has a number of parables where he talks about God's grace. And in one parable, he tells us God's grace is like a heartbroken father that runs to his prodigal. In another parable, God's grace, Jesus tells us, is like a merciful king who cancels the debt of one of his downstream, I mean way downstream, servants because the debt is too large for that servant to repay. In another parable, Jesus tells us that God's grace is like an employer who pays his 11th hour workers the same as the first hour crew because he knows the 11th hour workers have to eat as well. 
In another parable, Jesus tells us God's grace is like a banquet host who goes into the streets in search of people who don't deserve it, but who he can invite to his banquet, which is exactly what God has done for you and me. And what I want to say to you is when that clicks, when God's grace, God's deliverance, God's mercy, God's compassion clicks in your life and continues to click in your life, this is not a one and done thing. You, as a follower of Christ, will be like a rocket overcoming the gravity, I mean the downward pull of your circumstances and your sin. And it gets filed under grace. And grace is a person. And Jonah, no wonder Jonah in verse 8 begins to smash the idols in his life, what he calls worthless idols. All idols are, are, are worthless. And when we understand God's grace, when we begin to do the same thing, I got to uh, take this out of my life, I got I to bring this into my life. Because you understand nothing, nothing, nothing in life compares to the experience of God's mercy. God's forgiveness. I mean, ask Abraham after he repeatedly lied. Ask Moses after he murdered. Ask Joseph as he got puffed up because of his father's favor. Ask Ruth. Ask Esther. Ask Peter after he denied Christ. Ask Paul after he also murdered. And ask Jonah. Do you experience this grace? It's a person, Jesus Christ, and his undeserved favor. Now, let me go on. And let me begin to wrestle with the question, you know, how, do, how do we as believers in Christ to continue to grow in God's grace, to stay alive in God's grace so we don't do, reduce Christianity to uh, a head thing? And J.I. Packer in his book, wonderful book, I read it as a brand new believer in Jesus Christ a couple centuries ago, uh, says um, there are three things, three biblical concepts we have to embrace as followers of Christ to begin to know and feel God's grace in our life. And here's the first, that you can say, I am sinful, and you can repeatedly say, I am sinful. And even though your sin has been taken away in Jesus Christ, the reality is we still have uh, sinful fallen hearts. It's why Paul in Romans 8 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's talking to believers. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, the misdeeds of your body or your sin, you will live. I mean, look at verse 4. Or three, rather. We'll start with verse three. Jonah says, you hurled me. Then in, in verse four, I have been uh, banished. Uh, uh, Jonah is confessing his sin here. You hurled me. I have been banished. He's acknowledging his sin. He's able to say, I am sinful. I have blown it. And then in verse seven, when he says, I remembered you, uh, the Hebrew there is not merely recalling or recollection. It's an urgent plea for help. In time of need, it's an admission of guilt. It's an admission of sin. 
And Jonah says, I am sinful. Can you, do you? Is confession a regular part of your vocabulary? Second, you are able to say, I am unable. Uh, I'm unable to deliver myself from this fish, from this circumstance. I am unable to change my heart. Jonah's problem wasn't the fish, it was his heart. I am unable uh, to solve my problems. When Jonah ran from God in chapter 1, what he did functionally, now follow me, was he dethroned God and enthroned himself. And that's what we do when we sin. From Adam and Eve and their fall all the way to today. And uh, uh, this, this sin, this inability to say, I, I am unable spiritually to admit that to God and to continue to admit it. Uh, frankly, it's why many marriages falter and fail, why many ministries falter and fail. It's why many of us as Christians, as we get older, we become hard and harsh um, because sin seduces us to be self-reliant. I know what's best and self-sufficient. I can handle this. I mean, we live in a culture today, if you walk around uh, and say, um, you know, I am enabled. They're going to look at you and say, what? What a loser. It's central to the discipleship path. Uh, let me illustrate this. Over the last couple of weeks, I have had X in my life. We all have X's in our lives. Uh, my ex was a major source of frustration. Ex was a frustration for me. It was a frustration for Rhonda. And when Rhonda and I would talk about our frustration, all we would do was make each other more frustrated. And as I uh, looked at my heart, I realized that X was making me inside angry and anxious. And I was doing everything in my power to solve X. And then the light went on, and I realized I'm unable, that I'm powerless. I can't change my heart. I, I can't change my problems. And so I, I went to God as he began to open my eyes in this particular situation. And, and I said, here, God, I'm unable. Uh, you take this. Uh, you are able. You handle it as, as you see fit. And a couple things happened in my life. One is God filled my heart with peace. Anger, anxiety, gone. The second is that 36 hours later, someone called and X was resolved. How do you and I live in light of grace? How in the world do we grow in grace in a graceless culture? Well, it starts by being in touch with our sin and admitting it and being in touch with our inability. And then here we come to the key, to the third thing. You are able to say, I have been saved and I continue to be saved. 
at an infinite price, infinite cost, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where this passage gets very interesting. Look at verse 7. Jonah says, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. He had said the same thing about praying to his holy, God's holy temple in verse 4. Now, how do you do that inside a fish? How do you know what direction the temple is? Oh, it's over there. No, it's over here. Uh, uh, you know? Uh, well, you don't because it's a metaphor. Because Jonah the prophet knows the Old Testament temple was the earthly residence of the living God. And he knows that inside the temple, I mean inside the holy of holies, inside the temple was the mercy seat. And God promised to meet Israel, to speak to Israel, to forgive Israel at the mercy seat. You see, the, the mercy seat, solid gold, uh, was on top. It, it laid over uh, the Ark of the Covenant, solid gold. And inside the Ark of Covenant were the Ten Commandments. So picture this, the mercy seat on above, uh, the Ten Commandments below. And Jonah knows that once a year the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, symbolizing through the blood that the sins of Israel, the price has been paid for Israel's sins. And it was the blood on the mercy seat that shielded Israel from the condemnation of the law. That's why the mercy seat was on top of the law. And what does that teach us? It teaches us that only when uh, uh, there is a death of another do we find forgiveness before God. We can speak to God. We have access to God. We can develop a relationship with God. And what I want you to know when Jonah prays to the Holy Temple, Jonah is praying for mercy. He's praying for that uh, forgiveness. He's praying for that access through the blood. And what a picture of the grace God offers you in Jesus Christ through the death of his son. Talk about infinite price. Talk about extreme measure. Jesus left heaven became a man, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, was raised perfectly from the dead. So you and I can be saved and be recipients and live in light of ongoing grace at infinite cost. Now when you grasp and you can say, I am sinful and I am unable and the price has been paid at an infinite cost that I want to suggest to you, you will begin to take off because you are alive in God's mercy. Now let me conclude by asking the question, how, how do we know if this grace is real in our lives? I mean, for so many of us as believers, we're up and down, we're thin, and part of that is because uh, God's mercy and God's grace is just a 
a theoretical thing. It's a, it's a knowledge thing. And so I see three marks here that will help you understand the extent to which grace is real in your life. And here's the first. You are joyful. I mean, look at what Jonah says. These are all in verse 9. But I was shouts of grateful praise. We were singing about shouting our praise to God a little while ago. So Jonah says, but I was shouts of grateful praise. Uh, Jonah is experiencing enormous joy because of his enormous gratitude. And I want you to understand his grace is rooted in his gratitude. The word grateful is right there. So his grace is a vertical thing. I mean, his joy is a vertical thing. It's not a horizontal thing. It's rooted in who God is and what he does for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And all of this, this statement happens before Jonah's delivered from the whale. Before he knows exactly what's going to happen. And what I want you to understand in a world that talks about joy and happiness and comfort and convenience all the time is this is not temporary. This is not artificial or, or, or superficial joy. You know, my team won. I'm ecstatic. My kid hit a home run. I can't stop talking about it. No, no, this is permanent, deep, profound joy in the bottomless, bottomless mercy of God. You see, God's grace is like an ocean without shore and without bottom. And Jonah shouts with grateful praise. Second, you are sacrificial. This is the second line in verse 9. But I, I will sacrifice to you. Uh, I will bring my sacrifices. Uh, I will pay my uh, debts to you as a law prescribed for an Old Testament uh, believer. But let me jump from Jonah to what Jesus says about Jonah. Now fasten your seatbelt. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 12. And he says in the midst of a heated argument with the Pharisees. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is saying, I'm the true, I'm the greater Jonah. Jesus is saying, Jonah points to me. Everything in the book of uh, Jonah points to me. Uh, for, as uh, Jonah was cast into the sea of God's anger, and he was saved. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's anger, and we were saved. Jonah was cast into the sea of God's anger, and he lived. Jesus was cast into the sea of God's anger, and he died that we might live. Jonah was guilty. Jesus was innocent. And doesn't Jonah's experience of resurrection, if we can call it that here, point to Jesus' infinitely greater resurrection? Now sitting at the right hand of God, controlling all events, dispensing nonstop bottomless mercy from the right hand of God. And it's in Jesus, the reason I mention this, and we have to go to this because of what Jesus says. It's in seeing Jesus' sacrifice 
that I learn to live a life of sacrifice. It's in seeing Jesus' humility that I become humble. It's in seeing Jesus' mercy that I become merciful. I've tried a thousand different things over the years in my life, but it's only to the extent I see who Jesus is and his sacrifice for me that I change. Now third, you experience rest. I mean assurance. I mean peace. Look at what Jonah says. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. Again, people argue this is the most central verse in the Bible because it introduces the most central concept. This is my favorite book or favorite verse in Jonah, hands down. Jonah says salvation, salvation comes from the Lord. Uh, Now, the prepositional phrase there uh, revealed in the word from means possession. This is a wonderfully strong statement about God's sovereignty. Jonah is declaring that my salvation, my deliverance, my life belongs to God and God alone, is from God and from God alone. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is totally, I mean 100%, according to verses like this, many verses in the Bible, God's doing. God does not save you partly and you save yourself partly. Salvation belongs to God. And it's all grace. Rest, peace, is knowing my God has established his throne in the heavenlies and his sovereignty rules over all. A rest and peace is knowing that God works all things together for good in my life. It's knowing that with Jesus, he will freely give me all things so that as, as a result, nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate me from the love of Christ. And when you experience this peace and this rest, you know that grace is becoming increasingly real in your life. And man, oh man, do I want that for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to your throne of grace. We come and ask that you would fill us with grace. That you would overcome our our spiritual timidity, our our, our feebleness, our uh, um, lack of confidence. And we would see the throne of grace and we would avail ourselves of your grace and mercy. I pray this for these wonderful people. And now as we worship you, We worship you for who you are. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand together and respond with this. depths
Before our benediction, there's a, a couple other markers I want you to know that starting on August 29th, uh, we will have children's ministry in both hours, both the 9 o'clock and the 10.30 hour. We are going to switch the early service to 9 o'clock. We'll give you more information on that. Then the other thing I want you to know is that beginning October 3rd, uh, we will move back to our pre-COVID Sunday morning lineup with two English-speaking services, the traditional services in the East, two English-speaking contemporary services here in the West, followed by the Spanish-speaking service at, it'll be 1215 or so. Now, having said that, God, it's easy for us to sing, we will wait. But because of our sin and our inability, we actually functionally struggle to wait. Would you give us that grace, not just to fold our hands and wait, but to look to you and see who you are and wait in your mercy, wait in your gentleness, wait in your tenderness. So Father, we ask, that your face would shine upon us, that your grace would fill us, that the Holy Spirit would point us to the wonder of our matchless Savior. And all God's people said, amen. You guys have a great day. Thank you for worshiping with us.